0: Just feel enduring gratitude for the blessing of this, I call it work because I can't think of another word, it's this delight that I do. It feels like I have the blessing of last in my life to know that it's possible for me to have um, ever-deepening intersection of the two things that are most important in this lifetime, which is um, to love and to serve. And so it feels like I'm I'm so blessed and in, in, the, in the sitting groups, in the, in the meetings with people, in the retreats. And one of the things that's really wonderful about it, and there's so many blessings, I could talk for hours about it, but I won't, is that, you know, in the, you know, when a retreat's coming up, I know that like three weeks before I have to know what it is that we're going to title the retreat. And it's about three or four days before the sitting groups <laughs> that, you know, whatever it is that's going to happen begins to reveal itself. And it's with a lot of humility that I reflect on the various things that happens sometimes, like the last talk on joy was a request, was like a special request. But usually, you know, what it is, I'm not quite sure why it's happening and a couple of months ago I gave the talk here on the sacred feminine and the sacred masculine and what I didn't know at the time was that it was just going to begin a storm of revelation in me and there was a lot of interest in that talk outside too the one talk I've copied more than any other. And um, the retreat uh, in two weeks is, I've titled it The Return of the Mother, The Return of the Father, just really on retreat exploring um, the ways in which as men and women we can embody the, the feminine and the masculine, almost like have a toolbox next to us, both a meditation toolbox and a life toolbox so that you know we can really use the the whole beauty of the feminine and the masculine both in the practice of skillful tools in response to what is arising and in the living of our lives too and that it's not about you know the guys use the masculine tools and uh, the women use the feminine but it feels like like uh, the practice just seems to sort of offer the possibility of embodying the full richness of the masculine and, um, and the feminine. And so often in these talks then uh, I feel like I learn more, I'm sure, than anybody else. Sometimes the teachings that come through really, I just am sort of, you know, I'm just a real, you know, I'm really being taught and I'm so grateful for that and sometimes the talks are affirmations of what's going on, and sometimes, you know, so it's just um, uh, a wonderful thing. And so in the retreat on the 20th, and there are flyers over there, um, the talk's going to be quite different from the one that was given here because there's just so much more coming through, through, through. And so I thought today I'd like to just take one little piece of that because I'm not going to be able to explore it on the retreat because there's already so much. And so what I'd like to do is just look at together what feels to me to be <coughs> this really beautiful common denominator, uh, the landscape of, upon which both the feminine, the sacred feminine and the sacred masculine flower. Um, and this landscape is unquestionably the landscape of the ever-deepening capacity to inquire and look and feel into the question of personal will and divine will, or or surrender. You know, surrender is uh, a word that weaves its way through all the mystical traditions, but it's it's a word that is you know, comes with so many different um, connotations, so many different interpretations. I was thinking this morning that, you know, we say in war that, you know, when we defeated, then we surrender. It's almost like a failure. It's almost like we've been overwhelmed and and, uh, you know, it's a kind of a last resort, we put up the white flag. And so it feels so important that as women and men who are really concerned to know what it means to live a full life, that we really look at this question of personal will, of effort, of resolve, of doggedness, the sort of masculine energies, you know, and um, and the question of will, of, of surrender, of the mystery, of um, the beyond, of the absolute, so that's really what I'd like to to do today: is just have a look at this um, question of surrender and and of will. There's this great poem of uh, Hafiz about surrender. It's really beautiful. He says he says. Leave the familiar for a while. Let your senses and your bodies stretch out like a welcomed season onto the shores and meadows and onto the hills. Open up to the roof. Make a new watermark on your excitement and on your love. Like a blooming night flower, bestow your vital fragrance of happiness and giving upon our intimate assembly. Change rooms in your mind for a day. All the hemispheres in existence lie beside an equator in your heart. Greet yourself in your thousand other forms as you mount the hidden tide and travel back home. All the hemispheres in heaven are sitting around a fire chatting while stitching themselves together into the great circle inside of you. Surrendering to the divine, surrendering to to the heart that we all share, that heart that I certainly felt and perhaps you too in your own way as we joined our hearts and extended love to Morty and Karen and just included them. It felt like they were right here and we were right there and that's so mysterious and yet so true. And the heart of the mystical path always brings us to this question of of surrender, whether we surrendering to the absolute, as the Buddhists would say, surrendering to the beyond surrendering to the divine as the Hindus would say and the Sufis would say you know, surrendering to God, to the beloved. And the question of will then of course must come into question because when there is an assertion of will when there's a sense of not surrendering and really asserting ourselves in in um, a very specific way, perhaps you can get a sense in this moment that in those times of assertions, it almost implies within the the essence of that assertion that we know where we're going, that we know what's going to happen and what's best for us. And so, in this asserting of, of ourselves in that way, in the application of personal will, we can create, however well intentioned it is, we can create stumbling blocks. You know, in the assertion of will, we we um we we can categorize things, we can box things, we can almost create an infrastructure through which the flowering must happen. And the extent to which we carry preconceptions of what our deepest and truest loveliness is all about is the extent to which we circumscribe the possibilities in our life. Because in the end our minds just do not have the capacity to understand, to create, and to conceptualize what is ultimately possible for us, what is our essence, what is our birthright. This flowering of ourselves, the revelation of the deepest possibilities is absolutely beyond the scope of our minds. And so personal will has so much to do with thought and ideas and notions. No matter how beautiful the words might be, we've all read wonderful, inspiring, beautiful scriptures by people who have touched us a lot, including Hafiz and Rumi, and they're lovely. But in a sense, they are the paths of Rumi and Hafez and in the end it's almost like they are let go too. Even these incredibly beautiful words like all the hemispheres in heaven are sitting around a fire chatting while stitching themselves together into a great circle inside of you. How beautiful! And then those words are let go so that the Leah flower And the flora flower and the richard flower can absolutely, that the petals can open in their own way, in their own loveliness. And so it's this this incredible dance because it does take effort to be present, as we all know. You know, we can't just decide we want to be present and are present. It's almost like we have this, this tsunami of conditioning behind us that pulls us into the past and pulls us into the future. And so it requires a kind of willfulness to bring ourselves to the moment. And then it's almost like that's enough. It's almost like when we're in the moment, then it's almost like the work is done and it's almost like let go and so there's this beautiful relationship between a willingness and an energy to be present and then when we're upon that landscape then perhaps the most powerful gesture of self-blessing is to sink back into a willingness to not know just not know bring ourselves to the moment and then not know Many years ago when I was doing retreats at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, we would sit through the fall and uh, in the winter, in the middle of winter, round about Christmas, the retreat would end. And in the last week, there you were know, about a hundred of us and we'd all been meditating, so we were out there. And so they have a week which is called Integration Week. And during integration week, they kind of ground us, and there's more chatting. And there used to even be a dance, you know, you know, just to kind of get us ready for going out into the world. Because the first time they did a retreat like that, they sent people out, and you know, there were there were like the cases of people wandering around Northampton, sort of in a sort of a <laughs> sort of a psychic daze, you know. And <laughs> there were these zombies that they were returning to the world. So they then decided to have this integration week. And so there were all these entertainments, including movies and things and stuff. It was hard, but it was actually important. And one of the things that used to happen was that Zen master Sun Sunim, I don't know if any of you have heard of Sun Sunim. He's a Korean Zen master. He used to come and he used to sit in front of us and we were all these like tender-hearted, silent, quiet yogis. And he would sit there and he would go. Don't know mind, don't know mind, that's all, don't know. And, you know, we were, you know, <laughs> sitting over there. And he would just thunder and he had this big, booming voice. He was big, round, rotund guy. Just like, don't know. And the waves would like sort of roll over the, the Theravadan yogis, you know. <laughs> but it was really good, you know. It, it you know it was a real jolt after all these, you know, long, beautiful talks during <laughs> the retreats, you know. he You know, he would just like thunder and roar there about, don't know, and his whole teaching was about the development of a capacity to not know. Not to incline towards lobotomy, but to incline towards the greatest self-blessing, is that in the end we don't know. And it's all the notions that we do know that create so much suffering. The Buddha said that of all the attachments that human beings incline to, the greatest attachment is to views and opinions. The greatest attachment is to views and opinions. So the development of a capacity to not know as as an act, as a gesture of self-blessing. And so sometimes when I'm sitting and you know I'm wanting to use a little Label just to help if the mind is a bit um, scattered. I'll sometimes say, don't know. I'll sometimes say, yes, accepting, and don't know. Just yes, and don't know. Yes, that this is fine, it is what's happening. How could it be any different, you know? And I'm willing to not know. And then it means that. We're right there. There They're not all these filters and these concepts getting in the way and interfering. It's like we're just bringing ourselves to what is, right here and right now. Last week I woke up one morning and my thumb was huge. It was purple, it was purple like Anita's shirt and it was like two or three times the size, and I knew, obviously, three or that three were... times the size of my shirt? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the color of your shirt, I'm sorry. <laughs> two or three times the color... No, two or three... T- <laughs> uh, sorry. Some... <laughs> OK. It was the color of Anita's shirt and two or three times the size of this one. <laughs> So it was like, the first thing was, oh my God, it's like, because I did a, a workshop at the Manalani on Saturday, I had the, the YMAG group on Sunday, I had this group, I quickly did the mathematics, I'll go on to antibiotics, I'll still be on the antibiotics next Friday, which was like 11 days away. So, and it was like, oh, blah, 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 blah. And then it was like, stop it, you know? It was like I'd already k- k- choreographed the next 10 days, you know? So I, went to the, so I just went into the thumb, you know, and I, I just said, I don't know, I don't know. And then I said, Antibiotics? Yes. <laughs> and then I called my doctor and he said, Yes. He said, you know, this is a strep infection it could go into the bone, blah, blah, blah. My brother nearly died of a strep infection. And so I did it and it was like all the side effects that I anticipated just weren't there. And it was almost like, you know, just the blessing of not scripting something is so so enormous. You know, I said to to Karen, you know, she was telling me all that the doctors were saying, and I said, you know, it's important to listen. And then I said, it's really also important to have another space where nobody knows, not even the greatest specialist. And so, you know, can this not in the end ultimately be scripted? Can you just be with, with it as it is. I mean it's kind of like, you know, I don't know, here or on retreats, we've played around a bit with the WC meditation, you know, the restroom meditation, where, you know, you're in a conversation with somebody and something happens and you all stirred up and you're not sure what it is, but you're talking to somebody and, oh my god, you know. It's like, you know, I say, you know, excuse me, I have to use the restroom, you know. What can they say? No, you know. <laughs> And then I go to the restroom and I just feel it, you know? And I'm willing to, to not know. And it's more important to be with what is not known than to be there pretending that nothing's going on and feeling increasingly confused. This is an act of self-blessing, just befriending what is not known, which ultimately is everything, you know? I remember uh, in those... Years in meditation, they used to always give these stirring talks on fear, you know, like (coughs) three-part talks over three successive nights on fear and working with fear. And I used to think, gosh, you know, these poor people, you know, dealing with fear like this, you know, I don't have any fear, you know, I'm so grateful. And then (laughs) on the retreat, it was like, one day I said, Michelle, you know, there's something funny going on here. You know, and I said, she said, well, just hang out with it, you know, stick around with it, don't try and analyze it. And over the course of a couple of weeks, and it was very familiar, this, this feeling, this, these sensations in my body. And then all of a sudden, it just, you know, the insight just revealed itself. And I realized that there was so much fear, and it was so familiar, that I didn't even recognize it. And that just being willing to be with these sensations and not know, because I truly didn't know what they were, was really a gesture of the greatest self-blessing, because it kind of opened the door to understanding something that informed my life, you know, probably right from the very beginning, and it became become such a lived and familiar experience that I didn't know about it. You know, I didn't even know it was there. Just really be willing... to to not know. And it seems like part of what makes this willingness, what deepens this capacity for a willingness not to know, has to do with another theme that's come up so often over the years, and that's this yearning. This yearning, whether it's a thirst for freedom, a yearning for the beloved, as the Sufi say want to know God, is just a thirst for nirvana, you know, just keeping an eye on the prize, not knowing what the prize is, because if we have a sense of what the prize is, then we are, are sort of flirting with disaster again, because the mind cannot under, understand, but just yearning, knowing, sensing deep within us that love is possible, that freedom is a birthright, that it's, that it's essence. And, and then just live, living the yearning at the retreat with Frank a couple of months ago the talk that I gave on that retreat was on the homesickness of the heart on a Sunday morning and that was just about living with humility this, this, this yearning and the yearning is in the end for something that is not known it's such a it's such a paradox and the whole way of the Sufis is about is about living that 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 yearning for them it's yearning for for God for 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 the Beloved and it feels like if there's a willingness uh, um, to kind of to really incline towards an ever deeper exploration of what's most important in this human life what it is that that we thirst for most deeply in in the, the preciousness of this life. And, you know, times like this with Mordi and Karen and what's going on, of course, it, for me certainly, it just again reminds me how how precious this life is and how, how it can change like that. And what is most important? And is life being lived with footfalls inclining towards what is most important? And in the living of this journey, yearning, I think that there must come an ever deeper capacity to both bring ourselves to the moment and then to not know. Just bring ourselves to the moment and not know. And I think one of the great blessings of this impulse to both be momentary and to just be alive to the moment without prescription, without uh, conceptualization, where we're not feeling like we're in the driver's seat, if we're just willing to bring ourselves to the moment and not know, there is an intelligence that must come in that experience, in the moment. Uh, The Buddha called it uh, clear comprehension or discriminating wisdom. The Tibetans call it the experience of the Guru. It's just that when we are in the moment without prescriptions, so we're as deeply available to the experience of what is happening, just in our willingness to be there and not know, the appropriate response births itself. And so life is lived with an experience of feeling guided, if you will, by the experience of the moment. And we're not so much in the driver's seat, we're not the choreographers and the directors, exhausted as those choreographers and directors are. It's almost like, you know, as the Taoists say, the river is flowing through me and I'm just willing to enter the river fully participating but not feeling like I'm choreographing the river and wanting to change the course of its direction. And so we begin to live a life that is unmediated by by our agenda, unmediated by our notions of what must be. This is the deepest kind of faith. It's a faith born of our own deep experience that the most trustworthy experience of this human life is the one where we bring ourselves to the moment and then explore the capacity to just listen, to just be there. This hexagram, it's the Chinese hexagram t- to listen. And it's, it's listen with all your heart, with your whole body, and with undivided attention, you know, this is the Chinese verb, to listen, you know. Can we bring ourselves to the moments of life just with this capacity to listen? And then what begins to happen, just as an expression of what is essential for all of us, the essence for all of us, is that when life is feeling too certain, you know, when You know, Oprah has this magazine, I don't know if you've read Oprah's magazine, but the last page of her magazine says, one thing I know for sure. And then every magazine she talks about one thing she knows for sure. And whenever I get to that page, because a friend gifted me a subscription, so I get Oprah every month. And when I go there, I said, what does Oprah know for sure? You know, and I think, uh-oh. It's like all the red flags start going, you know. And so so it is, I think, for all of us that when, when there's, there's that felt experience of, I definitely know what this is about. It's almost like red flags, so like, hello there. You know, like pop-ups on the computer. It's like, excuse me, <laughs> for sure, you know. And so uh, we become uncomfortable with certainty, and that's really a great blessing, because there's a kind of rigidity, a sort of a stagnant feeling when we search, and it's almost like a me, in my view and opinion, against, you know. And so there's a great humility in this willingness to be momentary and uh, to not know. And so really, the whole process is about a refuge in presence, about a felt experience in our own individual way of acceptance, of, of yes, and of letting go, you know, not that we must let go, but that just just a surrendering of any notion how things should be, it's a wonderful poem of Rumi's that I love so much, I'm sure you all know it, but it's got this beautiful line in it. It's that one where he says, this being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor Welcome and attend them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He or she may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for all Whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Welcome difficulty. And then he says, I think this is the heart of this poem, he says, Welcome difficulty, learn the alchemy true human beings know. The moment you accept what troubles you've been given, the door opens. Welcome difficulty as a familiar comrade. Joke with torment brought by God. Sorrows are the rags of old clothes and jackets that serve to cover, then are taken off. That undressing and the beautiful naked body underneath is the sweetness that comes after grief. Learn the alchemy that true human beings know. The moment you accept what troubles you've been given, the door opens. So in a way, the whole journey is a kind of via negativa. It's kind of a path of not knowing, a a via negativa. And really our relationship with suffering is at the core of this via negativa, in the way of, of not knowing. Is there a capacity, a felt capacity to accept even the most difficult situations? I mean, if you just feel into what's going on with Marty and Karen, you know, just, you know, is there a capacity, and I ask myself, you know, is there a capacity to accept even this and to not know. Because I know that in myself, if I'm fighting what's going on, there's a way almost within myself that I'm pushing them away as well. and pushing the experience away. And so this via negativa, this way of not knowing, really is a way of bringing us up so close. So like when I was talking to Karen, this morning, you know, you know, I just you know, I just said, gosh, I just don't know what's going on, you know. I just don't know, you know. It's so hard, it's so hard. And it's not that we look for problems, it's not that we create problems or we form some sort of alliance with problems and they become our identity, which we see also happening, you know, people who you know who really identify uh, with problems and kind of make them their own and their their particular persona and their particular label. It's not about that at all. It's just about our relationship moment to moment with, as he said, all the guests that arrive at this at this human life. There's this um Hafiz short little poem where he says, you know, he talks about aloneness, which is, you know, another of the sufferings. There are cycles in the path where we really feel our aloneness and they are sort of a required part of the path because (coughs) in essence we are all alone, we're utterly together. You know, I mean, even the baby in the womb of that mother is both utterly interconnected to the mother. And there's kind of, when she's born, she's alone. She comes into the world, the umbilical cord is severed. And, you know, um, her human life then is one, on one level of being alone, and being utterly interconnected too. And there are times when we feel the interconnection, as certainly happened for me today, and there are times when we feel that aloneness, the aloneness of being born into this world, And dying when no one, of course, can go with us. And Hafiz says, don't surrender your aloneness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you. As few human or even divine ingredients can do. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God so absolutely clear. Don't surrender your aloneness so quickly. Hydra is the esoteric teacher of the Sufis. He's, um, you know, there are three schools in the Sufis. There's the, the silent Sufis, as they're called. they call called the Naqshbandi order of the Sufis. And their practice, their zikr, as they call it, is just repeating the name of God silently with the breath. Allah, Allah, with the breath. And there are the silent Sufis. They do a lot of work with dreams, too the silent Sufis. And then there, are, of course, the Mevladan Sufis, you know, the Rumi Sufis, the dervishes. And then there are the Sufis who chant, you know, the chanting Sufis who do mantras. Well, the Hidra was the esoteric teacher who first gave the silent Sufi transmission to the Sufis. And Hidra says, Uh, In one of his documented transmissions, he said, and this was long ago, like about 1500 years ago, he says, I am with those whose hearts are broken for my sake. I am with those whose hearts are broken for my sake. Like the experience of God is with those who are willing to allow their hearts to be broken in the name of truth, in this impulse towards what is true. We bring ourselves to the experience of life even if it breaks our heart, to the experience of what's going on with Marty and Karen. and if it breaks our heart, we're willing to live the broken heart. I'm with those whose hearts are broken for my sake. That's so beautiful. And so this question of will you know, of course, there's a, the great statement of the surrender of will. You know, Christ, of course, through his whole life, lived a com- seemingly a completely surrendered life to his Father in heaven. And then even on the cross at the very last moment, you know, why have you forsaken me? Almost an assertion of personal will. And then the other side was the surrender. Thy will be done probably the most powerful line in the Lord's Prayer, you know, thy, thy will be done. And when we know suffering from this perspective, when we know suffering from this other perspective, from a, a perspective not of personal will, but of thy will, the experience of the suffering has to change. Not that it necessarily becomes, if it's physical, suffering physically easier, but it probably will be easier if there's not an assertion of will, of wanting it to be different, but being willing to just be with the thumb, allow the thumb to just be the thumb, and then responding with nothing, nothing extra. almost done. And so in all the traditions, there's just all the different ways in which the, the teachers and the teachings have endeavored to incline women and men to this surrendering uh, to the moment. And um, Aurobindo, as I know many of you know, has anybody gone to Pondicherry here? Yeah, you've been to Pondicherry. Well, Aurobindo and the Mother are, you know, two of the great flowerings. And um, they spoke a lot about this capacity to surrender to the present and the birthing of an intelligence that informs life, that Aurobindo and the Mother felt were critical in the unfolding. I'd just like to read to you a little from... An interview with one of Aurobindo's students whose name was Amal Kiran, who was 98 when this uh, interview happened a couple of years ago. He was one of Aurobindo's earliest disciples. He arrived at the ashram at Pondicherry when he was 23 years old in 1927. And so he's talking in the ashram nursing home about. The birthing of this intelligence of the moment, and he said that um, he said this intelligence is so important for our transformation. He said he said it's identical to any human being's highest possibility. He said, and in order for transformation, for flowering to occur, this knowing, this intelligence of the moment, in all its qualities, has to come forth. It has to come out into the open. And he called this the psychic being, long before we had channels and crystals and everything. So it's a word I use um, sort of regretfully, because it has so many Connotation—it's not necessarily bad, but it's a—it's a phrase that's been so developed in recent years. But he called this the psychic being, and he says—he says the birthing of this capacity to be present and to surrender to the moment with not knowing, and the arising of this intelligence. He says it's a whole process. He says, and unless you go through at least some of it, you can't even imagine what kind of thing it is. He says, something in the heart center will speak out all the time that we present. It will say, do this, do that, even with regard to the most ordinary things. Let's say there are two paths by which you could reach the same end, which path to choose. He said, you will know. He said, and you will know and there'll be no reason. And he says, and then you just follow it implicitly. It's almost this surrendering to the river, to the, to the to the Tao. He says it's just really in the end a kind of self-giving, a self, a self-blessing. And he says, and when this opening happens, you have a tremendous overflowing, Overflowering, He says of joy. There's a warmth and a glow in what you call the heart center, which is the true guide to us. And he says there has to be humility, which of course there has to be a humility if we, if we are exploring a capacity to not know. And he says, and, it, and there has to be a capacity to be willing to be com- proved completely wrong. He said the best thing to do is just to surrender to each moment and he has these beautiful prayers which are Hindu sort of prayers that, uh, that they use. Would you like me to share with you these prayers? They're really beautiful and one of the prayers is I want the divine, I want the divine and let the divine make me want the divine in the divine way. It's kind of just puts one completely out of the picture. You know, I want God, Nirvana, freedom, the Beyond. I want the Beyond, and let the Beyond make me want the Beyond in the Divine way, so that I don't even have to do it in my Gavin way or my Susie way. You know, let me do it in the Divine way. And you, say, you are the guide. Guide me. Guide me, please help me. You know, I'm out of the picture. You know. Whatever, he says, whatever you want, do. Make me what you want me to be, not what I might dream of being. And I offer these just to give you a sense of the surrender, of the willingness to not know. And my sense is that if we die of our surrender, if we die in our surrender, only then will we truly know what it means to live forever, or as Christ said, don't know what eternal life means. And the only reason why that's possible is that if we are put to death completely in surrender, there is no such thing as death for us because we have already died. And that must be the, the mystical, the everyday experience of the eternal life that Christ spoke about when he was on earth when we die in our surrendering then there is no longer left anybody to die and so we live forever so beautiful I think I'm going to end here with just two quotes Attar was the teacher of Hafiz in Shiraz and I've just recently been able to um, get some of his, his words, and he says, that which you want to find, that which you travel around seeking even for a lifetime to find, lose yourself as, lo- as lovers lose themselves and you will become that. That which you want to find, that which you travel around seeking to find. Lose yourself as lovers lose themselves. Lovers of God lose themselves. And you will become that. So if we are willing to lose ourselves completely, our agenda, our thoughts, our notions of how things should be, then we become everything. That we yearn far, Rumi. a great surrendered heart and life, he says, you and I have spoken all these words. But in the end, for the way we have to go, words